I had access and deals to all kinds of high, high risk, early growing investments. But when they were outside of my content expertise, I had no trust, no diligence process. So that's why I got excited about the Mammoth product, uh, the Mammoth Tech product, was that if you can collate a menu of options in a couple of different domains of private investment opportunities, but in a way that has some filter of safety, some formalized diligence process that also educated me as an investor, educated my RIA on them, that allowed us to make a shared decision. All right. Well, welcome. Today, you're listening to The Alternative Universe, a show for financial advisors, fund managers, and those who want to navigate the diverse landscape of alternative investments and explore opportunities that lie beyond the conventional. Uh, My guest today is really an inspiration to me and has some awesome stories to share with you all. Uh, We're professionally aligned, but I think we've become great friends and I've learned a little bit about this guest and I'm really excited to help share those stories today. Uh, Welcome to the show, Matt. Steve, thank you so much. It's uh, an honor to be on your podcast. Uh, thank you. Yeah, thanks a lot. So, so Matt, you have an awesome story, and um, I should really introduce you as Dr. Matt McGirt. You know, I know that I invited you on to our show that's about alternatives and this whole universe that surrounds alternative investments. But before we get into that and your experience as an investor, I'd love to hear just a little bit of your story. Introduce yourself to our guests. How'd you get here, Matt? Yeah, sure, Steve. Thanks. Uh, gosh, first and foremost, I'm a, I'm a husband and father uh, of five children, age three to, to 20, and uh, married my uh, college girlfriend who's a dermatologist. I've been a practicing neurosurgeon now uh, from fifth, for 15 years, got my first real independent job at age 35, but uh, did my training at Johns Hopkins from age 28 to 35, did my medical school really um, in a five-year period before that. And so uh, really, you know, my dream was to be a, a physician. I figured out it wanted to be surgery, fell in love with neurosurgery, brain surgery, spine surgery. And that's been really my professional journey along the years. I'm, I'm staring down 50 years of age and have been working to build my personal life and my professional life. And, and alongside of that, I learned very early the value of saving, investing, and, and some discipline there and, and have worked with the same RIA for uh, 20 years. And so that's really how I've gotten here high level. That's really cool, man. So, you know, here, here you are uh, definitely not too much going on. Five kids, <laughs> two, two people in the medical <laughs> profession, and you've worked with the same RIA. So it sounds like based just on your timeline, you started working with an RIA around when you had your first child. Uh, yeah, you know, it's funny. I was a, a, a second year. Laura got pregnant our intern year in Baltimore up at Hopkins. We had our first child who's now 20 when I was a second year resident. Ended up having three kids in residency uh, about two years before we finished our seven year residency back when I was still probably making less than minimum wage per hour. We were living paycheck to paycheck, you know, about two years out from getting my first real job. And there's obviously a large salary uh, bump uh, once you get out of residency uh, and was introduced uh, to someone who a firm who specialized in working with surgeons and and physicians and realized, gosh, you know, I need to start thinking about this right away. 
I understood that the earlier I set aside money for retirement, the longer it had to grow with compounding interest. And so just wanted to be smart right away and actually started working with a, an RIA that, um, you know, I didn't have much yeah. under management, but developed the relationship with me. I appreciated that and immediately started our strategy out of the gates 24 months later uh, when I started on faculty at Vanderbilt um, at that time. Oh, that's amazing. So your attraction to working with this RAA was obviously, it sounds like it was planning based. So is that how they led? They helped you put together that plan so that when you had the the cash flow to save? Yeah. You know, this was an RAA that worked specifically with physicians. They didn't come in and say, we're going to make you super rich fast. We're not a Lamborghini type of shop, uh, but we provide tremendous expertise. We can help with your uh, estate planning, if you will, your insurance planning, we can review contracts. We just have a super expertise in the broader life planning of, of being a surgeon. And so it felt like it was a good fit and uh, really just jumped in and, and it's a trust factor like anything else. And, uh, and the relationship was, uh, did never fail to deliver and it was, it was good out of the gate. So, but it was very basic, right? It's diversification, uh, discipline, you know, setting aside the first X thousands of dollars per month that you never see, just some basic early habits that were really good for someone who had never made any money uh, in my early 30s. And so that's really where it started. It, it certainly has evolved over 20 years as, as our wealth has changed and the relationship and my needs are, are totally different than it, where they were 20 years ago. Nonetheless, that that it's it's been a good relationship the whole way. Yeah, that's amazing. So you know, bringing us to kind of present moment, it sounds like, you know, you didn't come in expecting your RAA or your financial advisor to bring you some sort of elaborate or crazy investment opportunities. And that definitely wasn't part of the, you know, the foundation of that relationship. And when it comes to alternatives, I think that a lot of the time when we hear the word, we jump to the conclusion that that's what we're talking about. You know, some hedge fund scheme that's going to return a thousand percent or, you know, whatever it is. And I, I think that you have a unique view on how you got introduced to alternatives and, and really what your attraction to, to the private markets was. Can you share a little bit about that, Matt? Laura and I were pretty disciplined. We knew we wanted to retire not a day after 60, maybe 55, depending on how we'd feel in 20, 25 years. We set up a strategy. We understood that, you know, if we could average seven seven percent growth in a very diversified public equities fund, that's fine. We wouldn't even look at the performance of the fund more than once a year. We understood it was going to go up and down. We we knew it was a 25-year play. That was our whole relationship with investing in, in financial planning in the first probably 10 years. But what happens for most folks in, in my peer group or other professions that may be fortunate enough to, to generate some some good income is that, you know, gosh, once you're about 10, 12 years in, you start having more income and more discretionary income, and you start developing adult relationships on the golf course or on speaker events or, you know, so I've been lucky to be successful in neurosurgery nationally, locally, and you come in contact with all types of industries and peers of successful people, a lot who make decent money. And, um, you know, I never would look at someone who was a multi multi-millionaire who sold their business is relevant to me, but there are hundreds and hundreds of peers and friends who were making solid money that were like me and many who were investing with much more growth. Almost everyone I know in my shoes 
you start realizing, okay, I'm safe and, and maybe boring, but disciplined for retirement, but am I leaving something on the table? I'm hearing about wins and success stories in other non-diversified funds. And, and you know, one of the challenges of, of, of the RAA group that I used was they didn't really have something they could bring me that might gain 12% a year, 14% a year, certainly nothing that might go 6x in four years. So that really was something that I was having to do on my own uh, initially. And because of my content expertise in healthcare and, and med tech, you know, I had proximity to some of that. And some of my early investment was self-driven through my own access and own diligence. And that's how I began getting into that. But clients like me begin to question, okay, what am I paying my half percent or 1% for? I can invest in a Vanguard fund. Really, what am I paying my advisor to do now that I'm 40? And I'm getting these Vanguard statements mailed to my house. And it's inevitable, even with someone who's conservative and not looking to become uber wealthy, it's inevitable that as you gain experience and exposure, you start wondering, okay, where's the value add for my RIA at this point beyond diversification and discipline? I can do that on my own. I don't need a parent to remind me of that. And I think that's the challenge because there's also a lot of movement, right? Uh, 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 folks like me, if you're a client of a financial advisor, I mean, I, majority of, actually, I don't know anybody of my peer who's stayed with the same firm for 20 years. I think it's because their um, aims change, their perspective change, and a lot of times they're looking for one or two products that, that can do more. I think my story of evolving and, and wanting not to get uber aggressive, but if I have 50, 100 grand, I'm already on track to grow 7% a year and hit my number at age 55, 60. Uh, it doesn't make sense to me to put more in that slow growing. You know, I want to use it wisely and maybe it right. can grow at 20%. Um, right. Well, and also my understanding is some of those early deals that you came across that really kind of drove this decision, not only did you have access to that deal flow, you understood it because it was within healthcare and innovation, there, right. but it was also something that you felt pretty passionate about. So the way I hear that is it's a form of like really peer impact investing. My investment you know, strategy and approach my first 15 years were RIA, diversified public equities, 7% a year, and disciplined saving. I ventured into higher risk investing uh, when it was personal relationships, content expertise that mattered in healthcare. Through relationships and folks that I met, I, I, I began to get exposed to financial technologies and just the business of, of it. And it was very interesting to me. And what I realized was, and I've had the, the great privilege through starting and running a venture capital fund uh, through Mammoth, our, our, both of our shared parent companies, and meet some really intelligent, smart financial experts like yourself and others and develop this FinTech product, I immediately saw value in that. Any product that can bring private placement deals to an average RAA who can't provide those with great security or, or diligence behind them. Because everyone in my community, uh, no one had access to a healthcare investment. Real estate was all there was. 
and outside of a real estate fund, uh, many of which were not available through my RIA as well, the menu was hugely limited. And what I noticed was outside of some larger bank-affiliated investment houses or, or financial advisory groups, access to 10 to 13, 14% a year growth real estate funds was also greatly limited. I had access and deals to all kinds of high, high risk, early growing investments. But when they were outside of my content expertise, I had no trust, no diligence process. It was massively high risk. It, it was Russian roulette to me. And there was a massive gap. I had many times $100,000 a year. I did not want to grow more at 6% a year. But my access to a menu of options that had some diligence that I trusted behind it just did not exist for me or most any of my colleagues in Charlotte outside of real estate. And to me, it's a massively underserved market. And I think my peer group largely misses out. And I think as an industry, there's an untapped growth service line there as well. So that's why I got excited about the Mammoth product, uh, the Mammoth Tech product, was that if you can collate a menu of options in a couple of different domains of private investment opportunities, but in a way that has some filter of safety, you know, we all understand these things are a little bit higher risk, but higher return, but some formalized diligence process that also educated me as an investor, educated my RIA on them, that allowed us to make a shared decision. Just like my surgery patients, I inform them, I give them as much knowledge, and we was called the shared decision-making and informed decision-making. So I do it every day when we decide whether to do a complicated surgery on a patient. The process and infrastructure, largely for your typical RAA, as I had experienced, but did not exist, where there was structure and process that allowed shared and informed decision-making on a menu of private investments. And there's no question that in 10 years, maybe five years, that will be more plug and play and standard in the RAA space. Very different than my last 20 year experience working with a great RAA. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, I think you, you've touched on so many things here, but ultimately why Mammoth exists and how we've been brought together is deeply tied to this fact that private investments are an awesome opportunity and they come across, you know, people like you, investors like you come across them all the time to date there is a massive pent-up demand. And I think that most investors that are making these private deals want the input and the guidance of the relationship with their financial advisor. But there's a disconnect there. And it's a deeply broken and fractured value chain process. And so the goal of Mammoth is to bring technology and service together, expert service together, where we can check all those boxes that you just listed off so that you and your advisor can make that informed decision together and work together and be reported to correctly and have accurate information, which today is just so hard within this market to do. Um, you're really left to your own devices. You know, I, I, don't, I don't work in the industry like you and others do and understand the nuances of those under the hood mechanics of, of, of private placement and those. But it is amazing just at cocktail parties on the golf course, it's amazing how many clients will move to new investor firms or, or, or new financial advisors, not based on how well or how diversified a, a, a public strategy investment strategy was, but the quality and quantity of private deals. So I'd say most people, once they have an AUM that they're going to carry with them that are 5 million and up, which is fortunate enough 
by the age of 50, a, a lot of my peers are, are at that. They move not based on who has the most diversified 7% growth a year platform. That space, that sport is totally different. They go to the firms that offer the best alternatives, the best way to gain 12% a year, the best real estate investments, the best access, access into a PE firm that's average 18 to 20 a year. That's what moves. I can just tell you on the client side, the consumer of financial services, by the time you're 15, if you're fortunate enough to carry a five plus mil AUM with you, that's what moves the needle and that's what grows business. So I've just seen it firsthand. It makes sense to me that to compete and grow that level of client, you know, the private placement piece is, is I think, mandatory is what it feels like amongst a peer of folks who, who consume financial advisory firms. And, you know, I'll say to the audience, you heard it here first. <laughs> I mean, not really, but you did. I mean, this is from... <laughs> Someone you want to work with, and I'm not trying to be too too cheek and tongue, but um, you know we hear a lot of, and not every advisor wants to grow their business this way. But for the advisors who do want to work with um, clients that are a little bit higher net worth and sophisticated investors that are looking for this type of deal flow, we need to start investing and having the infrastructure to be able to do it. Because another another thing, Matt, is all the publicly traded allocation. I, I tend to know. So if I bring in a new client that has a certain number of AUM. I know what it costs me to service that client. I know what my margins are, right? It's built into my fee. Alternatives are a lot less predictable. And so if I don't have infrastructure in place to service those investments long-term to have a client relationship like you've been able to enjoy with your advisor for 20 plus years, I need to be able to know and predict how I'm going to service those assets and build in a fee that's appropriate so that we're all happy. And um, that's that's a missing piece for a lot of advisors today. So. Um, for anybody out there who wants to grow this way, we need to start investing in that infrastructure. It, it makes a lot of sense to me, Steve, that if you have a tech solution like Mammoth Technology that allows you to uh, manage 100 clients at a small $50,000 per client private placement investment at the same cost that traditionally it may cost you to do six clients at that level. That enables the scale that has been prohibitive for forever. And to me, that makes a lot of sense because I can tell you year four, probably five to 10% of the investment I would have made, I would have requested in my first five years of practicing neurosurgery to be in, in some sort of healthcare sector private placement deal, uh, even if it was fifty, forty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000 through my RAA. Uh, I would have wanted that a part of a true diversification because just as a science person, data analytics person, if two thirds of the world's companies are privately held, it doesn't seem like just diversifying in a third of the worldwide companies is truly diversified if it's only public, right? So I can just tell you out of the gate, even when I was within my first million of AUM, I would have wanted at least 5% to be at something that could grow 15 to 20% a year. Yeah. That obviously was not available then. Uh, that makes sense to me. Yeah. And I, I mean, the data shows that, you know, from the institutional or the pension style investing in private markets, that they're pushing upwards of 30% allocated to private markets. And in the RAA market, in this wealth management segment, we see allocations similar to what you're saying around five. 
So they expect a lot more movement into private markets. So today, the overall makeup of our GDP, of our economy here in the U.S., is increasingly growing in the private space. It's becoming bigger. And so to your point there, to gain true diversification into our economy, uh, we need to be allocating to private markets. We really do. Yeah. And the other thing that I've learned, you know, Steve, is that some of these longer term illiquid investments that I've made that may have an eight year life before a return. To me, that has not been a negative because they, while I've seen my public funds go down 20% and just be subject to public trends and panic and other factors, my private investments have not, have not been affected by some guy on a couch panicking and moving every his, his day trading. It's a different sector of investors who are disciplined, who are experts. So the confounding that happens in the wild world of humanity that affects huge stock market trends and recessions, I don't see that and haven't seen that in four to five health tech, health services companies that I've been in for, you know, might be in year four out of eight. And so the factors that affect the growth of that company and the ability for a private equity acquisition or going public are less confounded by things that are unforeseeable and ununderstandable. And so I really enjoy the illiquid aspect because most of my investments long term. And so illiquid does not is not a negative bad word. Uh, it is actually it fits long term in growth and it is more refractory to things that don't make sense. That's an interesting take. I love hearing it from you, but we hear it a lot as talking to financial advisors is that the, that the liquidity risk does scare some of their clients. Um, I think if it's an appropriate allocation, it's interesting to think about. I just listened to um, someone from BlackRock actually sharing about their alt strategies and this concept of liquidity risk. And their rebuttal was, well, when are you going to start dealing with retirement assets? And so most of us are pretty, we have it embedded that we should be taking advantage of our, of our tax advantaged accounts, our retirement accounts, whether it's through our, through our work or our employment or even just a simple IRA. Well, that money until we are age 62 is locked up. It's not liquid. I mean, we can trade it. We can move it from one investment to another, which we're told we shouldn't be doing anyways. The idea of liquidity risk is somewhat psychological. It's not just to private markets, right? And sometimes can be a feature. Matt, this has been really good, man. I appreciate you sharing your story uh, with our audience. And I think that this conversation is just so timely because, again, we, we talk with so many advisors. And you, you had mentioned earlier this idea even of you on your own doing diligence on companies that you felt well suited to, I guess, judge or do that due, due diligence on. And one of the things that we've started to focus on at Mammoth is we've actually now partnered with a few firms that do due diligence because, you know, advisors run into the same issue. They want to help their clients, but they don't have the expertise and they don't necessarily have the volume to justify establishing a relationship with a research shop. You know, sometimes you can go directly to a large asset manager who's going to share the deal flow, but the, the type of stuff that you're coming across isn't going to be there. And so through yeah. Mammoth now, through our partnerships, firms can actually access research firms that can do a la carte due diligence reports. 
they can help you do the due diligence so that you can be a resource for your clients, which I think um, would be a really powerful thing for any RAA to share with their their, um, investors. Well, you know, what is so beautiful about what you just described is not only does it make sense for the investor or the advisor to the investor, but it also is a win for the fund, the fund managers raising capital, looking for limited partners, or even privately held companies that need to do a $10 million raise. Uh, You go to an institutional investor or a large venture capital or private equity firm, they're going to want all types of add-on extras for bringing $10, $15 million to the table. So a a more crowdfunded approach is going to be way less demanding. It's it's better, honestly, uh, in many ways for a company wanting to raise money or from a fund manager wanting to raise money for that fund. There's a a list of advantages if you are a GP raising LP money, if you will, from a crowd of not overly greedy investors who are not looking for anything other than growth in their capital. So whenever I see a market that's unfilled, it's an unmet need, and both sides of the industry doing business together are benefited. You don't see that all the time because usually those that gets filled 20 years ago. It's where you find an open space unfilled where both sides of the transaction are benefited by it. So it's clear to me as a not, not an expert like you that it was purely the technology and, and the mechanics in between the two, the investor, the fund manager, or that company owner that was missing. And I think with technologies like Mammoth Tech, I think it's going to allow that unmet need in the marketplace to be filled. And and I'm just thrilled that a team like at Mammoth Tech may be early and and, and one of the early companies to 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 serve that need. It's a really valuable problem. It's a massive market. Like I said before, it's so fragmented. And you know, ultimately the people who suffer from the fragmentation are investors like you who are just kind of stuck holding the bag, either sourcing your own deals, um, taking on that risk without professional guidance, even though you have that relationship. Luckily, your RA has been able to grow with you and learn from this, right? But a lot of the time, most most firms out there just say, you know, not my wheelhouse, not my problem, which yeah. is twofold. One, either their customers, their, their clients that they build relationships with are underserved as a result of that or the advisory firm lacks growth because they can't attract the type of clients that they really want to um, because they're not able to right. service those needs. So we're, we're really excited to be working with you and um, growing with you and, and building these solutions to make your life easier and better. It's been really exciting and fun getting to know you, Matt. It has been fun, Steve. Thank you. So Matt, I know probably some people will Google you and figure out who you are, but um, you know, I was shared this, Thing. This is a little tidbit about Matt, but Matt and I have something in common and it's not medical school and it's not the number of kids we have, but uh, I was a, I was a television star once. And so were you. I want to hear your story first. Give me your story. I want to hear your, <laughs> you're flipping the script. Mine is not nearly as uh, inspiring as yours, but I lived in New York <laughs> city, Matt, and I had grown a big beard. I had a really long beard. And, um, I was out at, at like a restaurant and someone random came up to me and asked me if I would shave my beard off for money. And I said, yes, I would. It ended up that he was a scout and they were filming a commercial for us cellular. 
And that weekend, I was on a plane to Hollywood, and we spent two days filming a commercial where they shaved my beard off. And I'm in a U.S. cellular commercial. That's it. That's my that's my acting I mean, career from beginning to end. I mean, these guys know these agents know talent when they see it. A beautiful person, <laughs> endless talent. You just know it, and you just you just that's an incredible story. Wow, that must have been a hell of a beard, by the way. I want a picture of that. It was good, and I'll send you I'll send you the link, and you can review you can review the commercial in all its glory. That is cool. <laughs> that is cool. So, so on to you, you had a little bit better. I mean, you you had a truly amazing experience um, that got to be shared on national TV. Uh, would you mind giving a giving a summary? You know, I'm blessed and fortunate enough to have a line of work, do a line of work every day that gets to help people and, and make a difference. And you know, sometimes it, there's a human interest story that is particularly powerful. And so, I've I've been on a couple of national TV shows over the years and. It's featured some of, of, of my work, some from innovative big surgeries that have never been done before. But the most recent one I think you're talking about uh, was a great human interest story where I'm not even the focus of the story. But um, uh, Saturday morning, there was a 50-year-old gentleman, father of three, uh, training for triathlon, hit by car, paralyzed at the midsection down, just happened to be half a mile from our level one trauma center. I just happened to be, it's my sweet spot of expertise and spinal reconstruction. I mean, he came in at six 30 in the morning on a Saturday when our ER was for somehow minimally, it was almost empty. And in record time, he went from being hit by a car to my operating room table and something like 45 minutes. I mean, this can take a day or more out there in the U S system it's oh, anyway so he it just things aligned beautiful for him surgery went perfect we put him back together he had a, like a one percent chance to walk again but he was a really the stories about the individual he uh, uh challenged me day one that he said look if you know in one year i'm gonna not only be walking and using the bathroom on my own and all these things I'm, I'm gonna run and and i'd like to run a marathon and i said well, I can't run a marathon, but I can maybe do a half marathon. He goes, deal, we'll run a half marathon on the one-year anniversary of today. And of course, I, you know, part of caregiving and healing is hope. And so I wasn't going to say there's 99% chance you're not going to be walking. I said, absolutely, let's do it. Not thinking there's any chance. So of course he beats this and uh, has almost complete neurological recovery. And so it's a story of his positive attitude, his ability to work from day one, his belief in overcoming his unbelievable positive person. But the 23-year-old who ran over him was also an incredible human being. He founded the Ethics Club like seven years earlier at Virginia Tech, went and found the patient, my now friend, three days out because he couldn't eat, he couldn't sleep. He thought he maybe had killed someone. Everyone told him, don't reach out. He's, you know, you're going to get sued, all this stuff. But he just, he flew to Charlotte. He lived in D.C., found the patient, begged for his forgiveness. Dean is his name, who overcame this adversity, was still paralyzed, was in a diaper. I mean, the whole thing was just forgave him, loved him, understood. And so it's a great story of forgiveness, uh, gratitude, love, and, and when, when your life has been taken from you. And then, and then the three of us became best friends. And ended up running uh, a half marathon together uh, a year after that. And so that story, mostly about those two phenomenal human beings uh, and my role of, of doing my job on call that day, 
just really got a lot of national attention. So we ended up on the Ellen DeGeneres show. That was really neat. The Today Show was at the half marathon in Napa when we ran it. Uh, Dean has written a book. He's a motivational speaker now. So it just tells you one of the great blessings and, and, and great fortunes of being able to practice medicine is throughout a career. Occasionally, you'll get to be a part of something special like that. That really is incredible, Matt. Thanks for what you do and sharing that story. And again, like I, like I said, that so many of your stories are inspiring to me. And while the role that you played in that is critical, just the simple concept of um, being able to forgive somebody who it would be so easy not to. And so you know, the calling really is that we can all, we can all do a little more. And that's a good example of that. So I appreciate it. Thanks for being yeah, here. Thanks, man. Steve. Thank you. All right. Well, thank you everybody for listening to this episode of Alternative Universe. This podcast is brought to you by Mammoth Technology and produced by Turncast. If you like the show, consider sharing it with one of your friends. Uh, you can subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this podcast right now. For more information about Mammoth Technology and Alternative Universe, visit us at mammothtechnology.com. Everything discussed on this podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered advice. The participants may have financial interest in the companies discussed on the podcast.